So, I have to tell you, uh, I, I am so grateful for this church, and I know that that is something that a speaker should say, but there's a story behind it. You have no idea how special you are, but let me tell you what happened in October. When I was here this past October here at Summit, I brought my son-in-law with me, and he was not saved. He grew up in the Catholic Church in Mexico and had a different understanding of Jesus, so he came here to Alaska with me. And he was at the service, and, and after the service was over, we went, guys, to Flat Top. And for our folks from Waxahachie, that's a mountain on the south end of Anchorage, where you go up and you look over the whole city. And we're just standing there looking over Anchorage. And my son-in-law, Omar, said to me, he said, Dad, he said, you know, I've been to so many churches, I have never been so loved upon by any church until I came to this one. And I said, praise the Lord. And, and I said, so, son, what does that mean? He said, well, it means more than that. He said, just the message and everything else and, 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 and them talking about and glorifying Jesus and asking Jesus into their heart. He said, Dad, I'm ready. I said, what does that mean? He said, I want that. I want Jesus to come into my heart and to come into my life because that's something that I've never known, and that church did it. Your church did it. And so right there, guys, this past October on Flat Top, I led him through the prayer, and he asked Christ into his life and into his heart. I've got this church to thank. What a great testimony. So when I say that it's good to be back, it's good to be back because now we're family. And of course, last time I was here, I got to meet and get to know so many of you. But let me just ask, how many of you are meeting me and me meeting you for the very first time? Would you raise your hands? Okay, quite a few folks in here. All right, so what I'll do is let me give a little bit of a testimony first so that you're not wondering what a Jewish rabbi is doing in a Christian church. And, and trying to figure out before the end of the service how to get me saved, okay? So, so the story goes like this. I love to share this. I was born in a Jewish home in the Holy Land, Brooklyn, New York. And um, that's terrible. My, uh, my parents wanted me to do three things to honor them as a Jewish son. They said, son, three things we want you to do. Number one, go to Hebrew school to learn the language of your faith. That was the first thing they wanted me to do. I did that. Second thing they wanted me to do is they said, son, when you're 13, we want you to have your bar mitzvah, a Jewish boy's entry into manhood. Second thing they wanted me to do, and I did that. Third thing they wanted me to do, they said, son, when the time comes for you to get married, we want you to marry a girl who is Jewish. Third thing they wanted me to do. Two out of three ain't bad. I was, uh, what was I, 29, uh, 30, and married this wonderful blonde-haired, blue-eyed, by the way, that's not Jewish on any planet, uh, Protestant girl from Northeast Philadelphia who grew up going to a private Christian academy and was raised in the Southern Baptist Church. And the family was so not amused by this, and they said, you know, when we told you to marry a girl who is Jewish, that's not exactly what we were thinking. And I said, Mom, Dad, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I know she's Christian, and I know she believes in Jesus, and of course, at that time, I did not. But I said, it's okay. Let me work on her. I will convert her. I'll have her forget all about this Jesus stuff, and she'll become Jewish like me. And so my goal was to have her give up her Jesus, and that was my plan. And apparently, God also had a plan. And God's plan was that he was going to get this Jewish boy to embrace who his true and promised Messiah is. And by the fact that I'm standing here this morning glorifying Christ, guess whose plan won? <laughs> Amen. Um, share with you how it happened early on in our marriage. And Sandy and I, by the way, just celebrated uh, this past January our 33rd year wedding anniversary. Thank you so much. Praise the Lord. So we're looking forward to 41, too, guys. We're only eight years away. Maybe we'll catch up. We don't know. But anyway, 
early on in our marriage, my wife opened up the Bible to me, and she said, I want to read some verses in your Bible, she said, Jack, in your Old Testament, or in Hebrew, we refer to it as the Tanakh, but normally we say Old Testament because, you know, we're Jewish, we're kind, we don't like spitting on people, and so she said, I want to read some verses in your Bible that speak to you about who your promised Messiah is. I said, good, you could read anything you want. You feel free to start in the book of Genesis. You could go to the end of the book of Malachi. After that, stop, do not pass, go, do not collect $200. Because I knew that if she stayed in my Jewish Bible, that I wouldn't have anything to worry about because anything that she would read in my Bible, of course, wouldn't have anything at all dealing with Jesus, of course, because Jesus is nowhere to be found in the, New, the, in the Old Testament. Good, I found that otherwise too. And she said, fine, I'll stay in the Old Testament. I won't read anything about, quote unquote, your New Testament, Jesus. And I said, fine. And she opened up the Bible. I couldn't see where she was reading. And she began to read this, and it went this way. For he grew up before him like a tender plant, like a root, like a shoot out of dry ground. And he had no beauty to attract us to him, yet he was despised and rejected by men. For he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. Do you understand what that's saying? This is so profound. In other words, the sins that we committed and the guilt that should be on our shoulders, he put it on his. Who would do that for us? And by his stripes, by his wounds, by his blood, we are healed. I was amazed, and my wife put the Bible down, and she said, so, what do you think? And I said, I think you didn't listen to a word I said. Because I told you I wanted to hear verses only from my own Jewish Bible. You obviously read something out of the New Testament about your Jesus. Why didn't you listen to me? And at that moment, she smiled and she turned the Bible around and she said, Jack, I just read to you the first five verses of the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. She said, hmm, Isaiah. Jack, isn't he on your team? <laughs> and I said, yeah, but I never knew that it was in there. And of course, that's one of, one of over 300 what are called messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the promised Messiah. And I knew who it was referring to. And at that moment, I gave my life and my heart to the Lord Jesus. And here we are this morning. And God is so very good. Amen? So there you have it. By the way, and we'll put the title slide up on our screen for the message this morning. You're going to love this. My message, my teaching this morning is called, What Did Jesus Really Say? The Hebrew Understanding of the Beatitudes. If you are someone who loves to take notes, this is your morning. If you're someone who doesn't, that's okay. Use your iPhone and take pictures of the slides. I've got a lot to tell you. And actually, I want to begin with, with a Texas story, guys, because we've got some folks here from Waxahachie this morning. And, and not too far from Waxahachie. And, and, and guys, this actually happened in, uh, in Cleburne. So, you know, that's not too far away from you guys. A couple of years ago, I was... Um, in Cleburne, Texas, and we were getting together for a pastor's retreat, and I met a pastor at this retreat, and he said, Rabbi Jack, he said, I want to let you know, he said, I recently finished up an experiment that I did with my congregation. I said, what did you do? He said, well, I wanted to introduce them to the Jewish background, the Jewish understanding of, of the scriptures. And, I, and, and he said, so what I did was I told them one Sunday morning that we're going to forego using our traditional Bible version, and we're going to use an Old and a New Testament that really gives you the Hebrew understanding of the scriptures, he said, and we would do that for one year. So he did it for one year, and after one year, he got back behind the pulpit on a Sunday morning, and he said to his congregation, all right, we've done this for one year, and now we will go back to our regular Bible version. At that point, there was someone in the congregation who, who basically gave a, a brief, a sigh of relief and exclaimed, oh, thank God goodness, we're going back to the original language of the scriptures, the King James Version. 
And of course, that's the perception. But the reality is, my friends, that when we learn out of Bibles that are written in English, and they're good, but something gets lost in the translation over 2,000 years. And could it be that the words of Jesus that we're reading today maybe aren't always the words that Jesus actually spoke in the original language that it was written 2,000 years ago? And so that's what I want to share with you this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the Beatitudes that Jesus spoke, of course, on the Mount of the Beatitudes in the book of Matthew. We'll look at the way we've always come to understand them, and then we'll see them in the Hebrew, and we'll learn what Jesus really and truly said, maybe for the very, very first time. Are you ready to take that journey with me this morning? All right, let's do it. Let's go on now to our next slide. And here on our next slide, I think that rather than just giving you the words of Scripture, let me set the scene for you where the Beatitudes took place, where Jesus actually spoke these words to his disciples. It happened right here. This is a photo of the Mount of the Beatitudes, the actual Mount of the Beatitudes on the northern end of what's called the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. You're actually looking in a southwesterly direction down a little bit toward the beautiful city of Tiberias, but not quite in the picture. So this is the setting. This is where Jesus is sitting with his disciples. And as he is, you know, for example, that he says things like, and let's go on to our next slide, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who've been persecuted for righteousness' sake. You know those. This blessed are language is very, very familiar to you. And you know what? When the disciples were sitting around Jesus and he was using that language, I'm sure they were saying to themselves, you know, this, this blessed our language, that kind of sounds familiar to us. This is not the first time we've heard it. We think we've heard it before. And they were right. They did hear that language before, because as we go on to our next slide, earlier on in your Bibles in the Old Testament, and by the way, that's the only Bible they had in those days, you read verses that read this way from the Psalms. Blessed are all who trust in him. Blessed are those who dwell from Psalm 84. Blessed are those who've learned Psalm 89. Psalm 106 says, blessed are those who act justly. Psalm 119, blessed are those without blame. Also in Psalm 119, blessed are those who obey. And Psalm 144, blessed are those whose God is the Lord. It almost sounds like the Old Testament version of the Beatitudes, doesn't it? And now we know that when we hear the Beatitudes, we have to ask, could it be possible? When Jesus was sitting on that mountain with the disciples around him and he was speaking the Beatitudes, could it be that the Beatitudes he spoke, he actually spoke quoting the Psalms? Well, why don't we find out where these Beatitudes actually came from, and then we'll find out what Jesus actually said. Let's go on now to our next slide and look at a very, very familiar psalm. Psalm 34, 18 says the following. The Lord is near to them that are of a contrite heart and will save the lowly or the poor in spirit. And my friends, we believe and we have every reason to believe that it was this psalm, this particular psalm, Psalm 34, verse 18, talking about the lowly or the poor in spirit that inspired Jesus to give us the very first beatitude that says this on our next slide. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now you know where Jesus got it from. He's quoting the psalms. But there's a deeper question here. What exactly does the term poor in spirit mean? Because the English of poor in spirit and the Hebrew of it, which is pronounced aniyeharuach, are really don't exactly mean what you might think. So let me explain. Some traditional teachings on this is that, well, 
Poor in spirit could mean that you have absolutely no money, and it doesn't have anything to do with this. You could be financially poor and be poor in spirit, or you could be financially wealthy and be also at the same time poor in spirit. Poor in spirit doesn't have anything to do with material wealth. It has everything to do with the fact that inside your heart, as far as your relationship with God, are you filled with faith or are you spiritually bankrupt and you feel sometimes you got nothing to give? That's what poor in spirit truly means. It's almost like someone saying, Lord, I want to find the faith to have faith in you, but... I, I, I don't know where to look. I feel so empty inside. I have nothing to give you. And, and, and Lord, I'm almost afraid to give you control. I know that it's yours and I can't do anything without you. But I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to search. I don't know how to look. I'm poor in spirit. That's exactly what it means. So let's go on to our next slide here. Because here on our next slide, I want to teach you all a Hebrew word. By the way, since you've got the rabbi here, would you like to learn a little bit of Hebrew this morning? Okay, great. Twelve people. Okay, so. It's easy. I know why you're hesitating. And you're hesitating because you're thinking, Rabbi, you don't understand. Rabbi, it, it, see, Rabbi, it's like this. Uh, Rabbi, I know that the vast majority of Hebrew words either begin or end with the following sound. <laughs> And Rabbi, I'm afraid to learn because I don't want to, to Rabbi, here's the deal. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid to say that sound because I've got people sitting in front of me who like me right now. And I want to keep it that way. Don't worry, this word doesn't have this sound. This word, by the way, is pronounced, it's easy, ashray. Everybody say ashray. Right, when you read the blessed are, blessed are, blessed are from the Psalms, and you read the original Hebrew of Jesus' Beatitudes, it's the same word, ashrei, 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 blessed are. But actually, ashrei doesn't so much mean blessed as it means happy. So should the Beatitudes really say happy are those? Well, not exactly, because in the Hebrew, ashrei doesn't have a verb that follows it. So it's not really happy are those, but it's kind of more like, oh, the happiness of those. So let's look at that first beatitude, understanding the Hebrew and what Jesus was really trying to say maybe for the very first time. You ready? Here it is on our next slide. Oh, the happiness that comes when you realize you can't do anything without God. Only then will you submit to his will. That's what the beatitude really says. That's what poor in spirit really means. Now you know, my friends, it's like you could put yourself in the place of a disciple who was sitting on that mount of the beatitudes 2,000 years ago. He really said, because they the original language, now you do too. Congratulations. You just put yourself 2,000 years ago in the land of Israel. Somebody say amen. amen. Praise the Lord. Let's go on now to our next slide, and here in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, and actually, uh, Jesus, by the way, quoted this particular book very often. He quoted it in the book of Luke, and, and there, there's a really interesting verse in, uh, in Luke chapter 4. And, and see, growing up, one of the reasons as a Jew that I couldn't identify with Jesus is people kept telling me that he was Jewish, but that, you know, every painting or illustration I saw of him, he, you know, he had blonde hair and blue eyes. And I'm saying, that's, that's not Jewish. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, my gosh, he looks Norwegian. And every time I would watch like a Jesus movie, I'd say, okay, he's definitely not Jewish because like there's this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, either Norwegian, California surfer guy, and he's got a British accent in every feature film. So I didn't understand. And Jesus, actually, it says in Luke chapter 4, as was his custom, you know what he did? On Shabbat, on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue which totally blew me away because, like, I thought, you know, that he went to the, you know, like the first assembly of God in Nazareth or something like that. But when he got up to read, he spoke these words. It said that he had come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And listen to this, because Jesus quoted this. Isaiah said it, and to comfort all 
who mourn. Now, that's interesting terminology. It's very, very familiar to us, and guess what? You'd hear that again, because the second of the Beatitudes comes from this verse, from the book of Isaiah. Let me show it to you. Here it is, everybody. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now you know what Jesus was thinking of when he said it. But the question is, why did he say this? Because let's admit, this one is kind of tough for us. Because we read it in the scripture and we try and wrap our minds around it and we say, okay, blessed or happy are those who mourn. Think about that. Happy are those who mourn. No, we're not. Let's be honest. Let's be real. Because if we are mourning, let's say, or in grief, we're not happy. Let's admit it. This goes against our grain. We don't understand that it's confusing to us. Happy are those who mourn? No, I'm not. If I were happy, I wouldn't be mourning. The fact that I'm mourning means that I'm not happy. What do we do? How do we navigate through this? Well, let's go on to our next slide here, and let me show you. In Arizona, for the longest time, one of our state senators was John McCain. And uh, several years ago, he passed on. You, of course, know John McCain because of his wonderful running mate who comes right from here in, in Wasilla, Sarah Palin. And when John McCain passed away, this is a shot of his daughter, Megan McCain, crying over his casket. Obviously, she's mourning. Wouldn't we all agree she's not happy? Okay, so how do we understand this psalm? Well, obviously, when we are in mourning over the death of a loved one, we grieve in pain. But when it says, blessed or happy are those who mourn, God is not talking about mourning over the death of a loved one. Can you imagine having that much grief and having that much anguish in your, in, your, in your heart and in your soul, not because someone died, but the reason that you feel like this is because you committed a grievous sin against the Lord, and it is tearing you up inside, and you are so mournful over hurting the Spirit of God that it just tears you up and makes you feel like that. That's the kind of mourning that Jesus is referring to in this second beatitude. It doesn't have anything to do with someone passing on. It means you are mourning inside because the fact that you hurt God hurts you so much it's as if someone died. So let's look at what this psalm, if you will, really points to and what it really means in Matthew 5, 4 in the way that Jesus meant us to understand it. Oh, how fortunate you are when your heart because you sinned, bothers you that much, will console and refresh you. Now you know. Let's go on now to our next slide. And Psalm 37, language 37, 11 says, the meek now you know where Jesus birth and find themselves abundance of peace. And so Jesus and the disciples are sitting around him, and he says in this next beatitude that the earth they're saying, wait a minute, but we for he seven eleven. And let's go on and show it to you. Here it is five verse five. Blessed are the men. They shall inherit the earth. My attitude psalms. Yes, okay, blood the meek. Who are the meek? What does it mean to meek? To maybe clarify. Because our the world's understanding of is very different than the biblical understanding. Uh, uh, story, and I'll, I'll, I'll cue you for the next slide in a minute. Don't go there yet. Don't go there yet. So, um, when I was growing up, before I was saved, and as a 12, 13 year old kid, we would read comic books. 
And, and in the backs of the comic books, they would have these, these ads. And the ads were geared toward like 12 and 13 and 14-year-old boys. And of course, when you were 12 and 13 and 14-year-old boys, you had, uh, you had absolutely no muscles and you wanted to be strong. And the advertisers knew that. And so a common advertisement in the back pages of the comic books, let's go on to our next slide, was something that looked exactly like this. I can see some of you are nodding your heads and you remember it. Now, now let me give you an idea what this is talking about. This is, this is a, an, an ad about a guy who is on the beach with his girl and they're sitting under an umbrella and a bully comes along. And, and violence, something very violent in that day, if you, were, if you were sitting on the beach with your girl and a bully came along and he wanted to bully you, what would he do to get violent? He would, you ready? This is the violence of the 50s and 60s. He would take his foot and kick sand at you. That's about as violent as it got. My how times have changed. So a bully comes along and kicks sand and, and, and the skinny guy's name is Mac. And Mac goes to confront the man, and the man says, oh, no. He says, listen, you, I would smash your face, only you're so skinny you might dry up and blow away. And Mac is intimidated, and he, he says to, to the girl he's with, that, that big bully, I'll get even with him someday. And his girlfriend says to him, oh, it's okay. Don't let it bother you, little boy. Ooh. So that one hurt and that one stung and he goes home and he's upset and he says, you know what? I've got to do something so that I can be strong and have muscles and that way the next time a bully comes along, he won't show me up. And there was a guy back then and you could see he's fairly buff and his name was Charles Atlas who had muscles and Charles Atlas had a book that told you how to exercise and work out with weights and be strong. And Max said, I'm going to send for that book. So he sends for that book, and then it says later on, and we don't know how much later on, all of a sudden, Mac, this skinny, scrawny guy, I mean, he's buff. He's got muscles coming out where, where, where people didn't even know they had muscles. And, and so the next time he's on the beach with the girl again, it's amazing she gave him a second chance, but he's on the beach with the girl again, and they're sitting under the umbrella, and the bully comes back, and Mac says to him, what? You here again? Here's something I owe you. And he just decks him. And his girlfriend looks at him. He says, oh, Mac, you are a real man after all. <laughs> the hero of the beach. And, and in the world's understanding... In the world's understanding, it would be that, well, you know, something has happened to, to Mac. He used to be kind of meek and mild, but now he's not meek anymore. And so in the world's understanding, it, it's kind of a bad thing to be meek because in the world's understanding, it means you let everybody walk all over you. The world's understanding is that meekness is weakness. The biblical understanding, though, is that meekness is not weakness, it's actually strength. Because biblically, meekness, or to be meek, is a person's way of saying, you know what, I don't get everything right, and I'm willing to admit when I get something wrong. And I'm also willing to admit that I don't know it all, that I don't have all the answers, and I've got a teachable spirit, and I'm open. That's a beautiful thing, and it's a sign of strength, and that's what meek really means. So now let's understand it in the way that Jesus really spoke it. On to our next slide. Here it is, everybody. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Oh, the happiness that comes when you're humble enough to admit you don't know everything, and you're willing to learn. It is you who will see God supply all your needs. Isn't it great biblically to be meek? That's what Jesus is talking about. It totally throws our understanding of this beatitude, totally throws it away because, you know, when we read, well, the meek shall inherit the earth, and many of us were taught, well, you know, the good news is that if you, if you let the bully walk all over you, it's terrible here, but don't worry, once you get to heaven, you'll have a mansion bigger than his. That's not it. Meekness is strength, not weakness. 
Let's go on now to our next slide. Here on our next slide, Psalm 42, verse 2 says, My soul thirsts for God. And we believe that it was this psalm that inspired Jesus to give us this next beatitude, which is found here in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I would say that out of all of the Beatitudes that we read and try and identify with, this one's the toughest one for us to, uh, to figure out. And the reason is because hunger and thirst in our day and time here in Wasilla, Alaska, is very, very different than hunger and thirst 2,000 years ago in the first century Israel. If we're hungry or we're thirsty today, Guys, if you're thirsty, you could just go to the faucet, you know, uh, turn on the faucet, have the water come out, and, and, and so you don't have to worry. If you're hungry, you don't have any food in the house, just go out to cars and do some shopping. We don't understand what hunger and thirst is. The type of hunger and thirst that Jesus, though, is referring to refers to a time where in ancient Israel, the leader of the house barely made on average enough money to feed his family for the day and if he was a day laborer and he didn't get any work his family could starve for the day some families were at the point of where they could die if they didn't have any food or they could be so thirsty but what do you do when the well where you draw water from is a mile or more away and it's 116 degrees and you can't go there you will die without a drink your life depended on it that's the kind of hunger and thirst that Jesus was talking about in his day in his time in his land so let's understand this beatitude in the way that he really meant it it's more like this oh the happiness when you seek God's ways just as a starving and parched person seeks food and drink. And you know what? If you desire God's will that much that your life depends on it, you will always be satisfied. He will always satisfy you. Amen. Isn't it great to be sitting on the Mount of the Beatitudes with Jesus this morning? And a little bit different than the mount but it's the same so go with me on this let's go on to the next slide here in our next slide psalm 18 verse 25 says with the merciful you show yourself merciful hmm that language sounds familiar doesn't it, it do you think it's maybe even remotely possible that jesus was reading this psalm as hmm merciful Show yourself merciful. That when he said this next beatitude, he was quoting this psalm? Oh, I do, because look how identical the language is. Here it is, everybody. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. It's the same thing. Now you know where Jesus got it. But what exactly does mercy mean in here because if we're going back to the original Hebrew there's more than one Hebrew word that means mercy they're not all talking about the same thing so exactly what type of mercy is it well let's teach you another Hebrew word because you did really good with Ashrei so I'll make this next one a little bit more challenging for you this is the Hebrew word that refers to the mercy that Jesus is talking about in this beatitude in the original language of Scripture. It's pronounced rachum. It's not racham, rachum. Everybody say rachum. My gosh, you all sound so Jewish right now. This is amazing. You did that better than most Israelis I know. Not you, because you grew up there, but most Israelis. That was great. Wasn't that great? Didn't they do that so well? That's wonderful. So rachum, the, the type of mercy this is talking about is, refers to compassion or pity or showing restraint in imposing punishment. In other words, this is mercy you give to someone when they really should have gotten what they rightfully deserved. Uh, let me give you a present day example of this. And, and I know we've got our folks here from SAGU, from uh, Southwestern Assembly of God University. And of course, the rest of us are here from uh, Alaska. So I'll kind of use two analogies to describe what kind of mercy this is talking about. 
Okay, first our area here in Wasilla. So uh, let's say you work in Anchorage, uh, and it's the end of the day, and you get on the Glen Highway, and you head on down, and you know you've got to shoot off to the Parks Highway, and pretty much on the Glen Highway, you're doing 65 miles an hour the whole way, or at least you should, because that's a speed limit, and, and if you want to tell me you don't, that's fine. After service, that's when confession is. But anyway, so, so you're, going down, you're, you're going down the highway, and you know that part where, you know, a, a, after you go over the arm and, and the speed limit drops from 65 miles an hour to 55 miles an hour. You all know the sign that I'm referring to, yes? Okay. And so, um, you decide that you're going to continue to go 65 miles an hour, despite what the sign says. So, you can continue going 65 miles an hour and you get pulled over by the police. Now, for our friends here from Sago and Waxahachie, let me kind of give a similar analogy so you guys can identify. So, uh, one morning you guys decide that you want to visit some friends in Waco. So, Waxahachie to Waco is about an hour drive or so. Maybe more because of the construction on 35. See, I know where you come from. So, so you're heading down the highway, and when you start to get into Waco, it goes down from 75, and then 65, and then 55. But you like the 75, because, like, you got there in 10 minutes, and it's really cool. But then the speed limit goes down, and you get stopped by a police officer. So in both cases, the police officer comes over to your window, whether you're here in Wasilla or just outside north of Waco, and says, um, you know... You were going 75 miles an hour, and the speed limit is 65 miles an hour. And you say to the officer, say, well, officer, I know the speed limit is 65 miles an hour, but I wasn't going to be out that long. So, so um, the officer says, you know, you know I, I was going to give you a ticket, but that's the funniest joke that I've heard all day, so... Um, I think instead I'm going to let you off with a warning. And you are so relieved because that's the third warning you've gotten that day. <laughs> he should have given you the ticket. You deserved it, but instead he held it back and only gave you a warning. He showed you compassion and mercy. He showed you rachum. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. That's the type of mercy Jesus is talking about in this beatitude. So now let's understand it in the way that Jesus originally said it. It's more like this. Oh, how fortunate. When you can show compassion toward others, even when and especially when they don't deserve it. And you know what? You do that for others, God's going to do the same thing for you. Now you know what Jesus really said. Let's go on now to our next, our next one. This is from Psalm 24, first part of verse 4 to the last part of verse 5, says the one with clean hands and a pure heart will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of their salvation. Don't you know that Jesus was reading this and said, pure heart. You know, I kind of like this. When I sit with my disciples on the Mount of the Beatitudes one day, I I'm going to talk to them a little bit more about it. And he did. And it's one of the Beatitudes. In fact, it's the next one. Look at the language of it, everybody. Here it is. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now you know where Jesus got it. The question is, what does it mean to have a pure heart? And this one has been mistranslated so many times, but let me give you the correct understanding of it. To have a pure heart means that you are someone who has no ulterior motives. It means that when you do for others and when you give to others, you're not doing it to give yourself a pat on the back. You're doing it because that's who you are. You just want to love and give toward others and show them the love of Jesus. And not only do you not want anything in return, but you'd probably feel uncomfortable if somebody tries to give you something in return. That's what it means. That's what Jesus was really saying. So now let's understand this beatitude in the language he really spoke and what he was really trying to convey. Here it is, everybody. Oh, the happiness that comes to you when your motives are pure and you don't want anything in return. It is you who will know God in all his fullness. Wow. 
Today we're knowing the words of Jesus in the way that he originally spoke them 2,000 years ago. Isn't that wonderful? Hang on, we got just a couple more. Let's go on now to our next one. This is Psalm 34, verse 4. It says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace. By the way, what do you call a person who seeks peace? You would refer to them as a peacemaker. Hold that thought. Seek peace and pursue it. Could it be it was from this psalm that Jesus got his next beatitude, which says this, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So now that we know where Jesus got it, what exactly does that word mean? What exactly is a peacemaker? It may or may not be what you think. And, and to kind of explain this one, I'll do a, kind of like a hat off to Jeff Foxworthy. What exactly is a peacemaker? Why don't we talk about what or who is not a peacemaker? It might go something like this. If you walk into a room and the first thing people say about you is, uh-oh, here comes trouble, you might not be a peacemaker. If you get into an argument with someone, and rather than going to them personally in a spirit of love to work it out and talk it out like Jesus tells you to do, you instead go tell every other person on the planet how bad they are and slam them on Facebook and send emails out injuring their reputation and you never go to them in a spirit of love to talk it out, you might not. Be a peacemaker. See, a peacemaker is someone who seeks peace with others, not just when it's easy to do or settle a dispute, but particularly and even more so when it's hard and when it's tough. A true peacemaker is one who seeks to make peace with others knowing that it's going to be uncomfortable, that they're going into the field of battle, but they know that that's what Jesus wants them to do. And so even though they don't want to do it, even though they don't like confrontation, even though it makes them feel uncomfortable, they're going to do it anyway because that's what God said that you do. Matthew 18, by the way, that's a peacemaker. So in that understanding, did Jesus really mean when he said it? Here it is. Oh, the joy you have when you seek peace with others, even and especially when it is not easy. You do that and you're truly acting like a child of God. I think we got one more. Yeah, we do. Psalm 31 verse 15 says, My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. So the theme here is persecution in this psalm. And should it surprise us that from this psalm comes the last and final beatitude. It's three sets, but it's considered one. Where Jesus talks about persecution. And here's how you've always read it in your Bibles. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who've been persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people, when they revile you and, and, and when they persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What exactly does this mean? Exactly what type of persecution is this talking about? Uh, let me give you an illustration so that I can drive the point home. Um, it, early on in my early days in, in ministry, and I was pastoring part-time, I also served as a hospice chaplain, worked for a hospice organization, and, and it was one of the most fulfilling things that I've done because I would see many, many people who were on their deathbed in their last days, and sometimes when I came to visit them, I would be the only visitor they had seen for months and just to see the appreciation on, on, on their faces and hold their hands and share Jesus with them. 
It's a great feeling. If you ever have the opportunity to do that, I, 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 would, I would strongly recommend it. And whenever I left one hospice organization, by the way, I, uh, I, I never had a problem going on with a new one because they would call me in for an interview and they would say, we're a hospice organization. And they said, Jack, you know, we have Christian patients and we have Jewish patients. Who, which, which of those two can we send you to see? And of course, being a Jewish believer, I said, yeah, uh-huh, sure. They said, oh, wait a minute, you're, you're Jewish, but you're a believer. We can send you to see anybody. Wow, you're hired. And so sometimes they would send me to see, you know, Jewish hospice patients. Other times they'd send me to see Christian hospice patients. And one time they called me at home. They said, Jack, we have a hospice patient for you to go and visit tomorrow. I said, great, Jewish or Christian? They said, none of the above. I said, tell me. And they said, well, there is a Catholic man. He's in a hospice facility, and he's going to be passing on. And the family has asked for a Catholic priest to show up. I said, well, good luck finding one then. They said, no, Jack, we, we don't have anybody else, so we need you to take on that role. I said, okay, I can do that, not a problem. They said, oh, and Jack... By the way, and I went, oh, no. Have you ever noticed, like, if somebody says something to you and you say, okay, great, I can feel settled with that, and they followed up with, by the way, it's never good? They said, by the way, the family has also requested that you say last rites over the man. I said, okay, I can do that. They said, in Latin. I went, huh? They said, thank you so much, Jack, and they hung up the phone. So I'm thinking, okay, tomorrow me, a Jewish guy from New York, is going to go visit a Catholic man. I will come in as a Catholic priest, and I will say last rites over him in Latin. How am I going to do this? I don't know a lick of Latin. All I know is that many words in Latin end with the letters U-M, and that's about it. And so I'm thinking, what do I do? And I'm looking over my vast theological library of books in my house, and I said, yes. There is a resource I can use to learn the last rites in Latin. And so at that point, I went on to Google.com. I said, let me see, Gloria, Patria, Spirit. I said, I can do this. I've got it. And so the next, next day, I went out and I, I walked into the hospice facility. I was brought into the room. They introduced me as Father Zimmerman. And I said last rites, and I gave the family comfort, and I said praise the Lord, and I felt good about it, because look, you know, regardless of what label you are, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I was, I was overjoyed to do it. I was thankful to do it. So my hospice organization called me the next day, and they said, okay, we have another patient for you to see. I said, okay, who is it this time? They said, well, it's a Jewish patient. I said, Whew, I can do this one. And uh, they said, it's a Jewish man, and, and we want you to see him, and he's got maybe a day or two left. So I walked into his room in the hospice facility, and two of his daughters, I think they were in their 50s, were sitting there, and they were traditional Jews who do not believe in Jesus. And of course, I'm walking in as a Jewish rabbi, and so far, everything's cool. And, and I go over to the man's bedside and I say the traditional Jewish prayers that you say when someone is passing on. And I pray and I spend time and, and, and I give comfort to the sisters and, and I'm about to, to leave and say thank you. And at that point, one of the sisters says, so Rabbi, do you have a congregation here in town? And I thought, oh no, I know where this is going. And I said, yes, I do. They said, well, is it an Orthodox Jewish congregation? You know, a very, very strict Jewish congregation? I said, no. I said, oh, okay, is it a more conservative con con Jewish, traditional Jewish congregation? I said, um, no. <laughs> they said, is it a, you know, reformed Jewish congregation? Still traditional and Jewish, but a little bit more open. And I said, I, I said, um, N n no. <laughs> they said, well, um, what kind of congregation is it? I said, um, keep going.
And they didn't know what other kind of congregation there was. And, and as a Jew, I w my congregation was called a messianic congregation, where you worship Jesus in a Jewish culture and context, but you worship Jesus. And so they said, well, what kind of congregation is it? I said, well, it's called messianic, and, and that's about all I was able to get out of my mouth. Because I could see the look of horror on their faces. They said, get out. Because to them, I'm not Jewish, you know, anymore. And so I left and I said, God, it's all right. I came to glorify you. I gave the family comfort. That's all I care about. And I walked out and I forgot about it. Until I got back to my office and the manager of the hospice organization called me into his office. He said, Jack, did you pray over a Jewish man? I said, yeah, I did all the prayers. I did exactly what I'm supposed to do as a hospice chaplain. He said, well, we have a little problem. And I'm thinking, of course we do. Of course we do. I said, what happened? He said, well, one of the daughters gave us a call, and uh, she is accusing us of being deceptive by sending a Christian instead of a Jew, and she has basically asked us to let you go, or she is suing us for millions of dollars. So I'm sorry, we have to let you go. And they did. Right then and there, I was fired. And, you know... I, the, the, the pain there it wasn't so bad. What was bad is after I walked out of the office, the other employees there who had already heard what's going on, and they're my buddies, my friend. I mean, I see them every day. I hug them, and not even one of them would look at me. And I walked out. And I came home to Sandy, and I said, honey, I've had a rough day. And we talked about it, and, and we talked through it. And she said, you know what? She said, you're not here to impress people. You're here to glorify God. And, and, and listen, believer, God, when you become a believer, God never promises to exempt us from persecution, but he always promises to deliver us through it. And my wife set me straight, and she said, look, she said, not to minimize this, she said, but... You know, you were persecuted for your faith, but imagine people overseas who are proclaiming the word of God in underground churches in places where they're not only supposed to have a Bible, and they give their lives for it. She really put things in perspective. That's what Jesus was talking about in this final beatitude. Here it is. Oh, the joy when you get mistreated or you get persecuted. Reason why? Because you believe in Christ. Don't sweat it. Don't belabor it. Don't live there here. Because you know why? We're not living for the now. We're living for the then. And in the then, in the future, in the end, your heavenly reward will be greater than anything, anything, anything you've ever experienced here on earth. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now you know what Jesus really said. Now you can go home being able to say the next time you read the Beatitudes, not only did I get the original understanding of Jesus' words, but it was as if I was sitting with him and the other disciples on the Mount of the Beatitudes, hearing him say those words for what they truly meant for the very, very first time in our lives. Let me close this in a word of prayer, okay? Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you glory and honor and praise today. And we're so thankful, Lord, that we do indeed have the resources where we can look and see and find out and explore and know, Jesus, what you really said. In the original language, it was written. And Father, I pray, Lord God, that we would take this this. Uh, information that we receive today and let it travel down from head knowledge to heart knowledge so that we can truly apply it to our lives and be the type of Christians you want us to be to live that life and to live it more abundantly. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking to us in the original words for the very first time in our lives on that mountain today. We give you all the praise you are due. In the precious and strong, strong name of Christ. And everyone agreed and said, amen. You can give him praise. It's been a great morning. Praise the Lord.